Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Epaminondas Christophilopoulos. Nondas holds the UNESCO Chair on Futures Research, hosted by the Foundation for Research and Technology, Hellas, and is Chief Scientific Advisor to the Special Secretariat for Foresight at the Presidency of the Government. He has been working in the field of futures research since 2010, designing and implementing a variety of projects on topics such as future of innovation, technology, work, urban farming, and China, to mention a few. He has published monographs and peer-reviewed articles in the main futures journals, chapters in several books, and he's also adapted in Greek the book Playing with the Future for teachers and students. In collaboration with UNESCO, he is supporting the concept of futures literacy and designs experiential workshops for students and organizational executives. Welcome to FuturePod Nondas. Hello, Peter. It's my pleasure to be with you. Great, Nondas. So the first question on FuturePod is the story question. So what is the Nondas story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, uh, I think uh, maybe the story goes back when I was a, a student, a young student in primary or secondary school. Uh, my father was a police officer, so we have been moving around the country for every one or two years. So I was moving around Greece, north and south. So I think I developed this kind of uh, capacity, which I realized only a few years to see things with a different angle, living in different communities, in different places. Yeah. So I realized after uh, some years with my psychotherapist, that was something that really affected <laughs> my adult life. Uh, but uh, I started, let's say, my adult life studying as a physicist as many people in the foresight community and uh, actually focused more on atmospheric physics and pollution at the end of my years in the university. I wanted to be an environmentalist. I think it was also very popular at that time. I did my master on environmental impact assessment and actually I started working in the field in environment but then moved to something completely different that was technology transfer so for a big part of my early years I was doing technology transfer working with startups and researchers and spin-offs and after I did this and I lost my interest I, I started again traveling not in the country but globally so I set up a unit doing international research policy and I was coordinating projects all around the world. So not Australia, but Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia. And I did this. And then I think it was a moment when it was in the beginning of the global financial crisis that also hit Greece. Of course, I had heard about foresight before and I was doing some little things in foresight. But now that I'm looking back at those things, it was really bullshit. So nothing to do with real foresight. But I had a Now a friend, at that time it was just someone I knew. He went to the States just to get some new ideas. I mean, the financial crisis created a very, very sad atmosphere. Everybody was looking for a way out or for new ideas. So he traveled to the USA and by luck, I think he was in the FSF conference and he met Jerome Glenn. 
Wow. And uh, yeah, and he came back and then he invited a group of people of different kind of uh, companies or organizations to set up a Millennium Project Node in yeah. Greece. So this is how it started. So we have been a group of uh, like 15, 20 people that we have been invited in that meeting. But at the end of the day, it was only myself and this friend staff that actually we have been working together since that time. So uh, it was like this. It was a love first sight. I started uh, reading. I did an excellent executive course, the International Certified Future Strategist. The main company behind is Kairos Future, which is a futures consultancy in Stockholm, in Sweden. Uh, and I just started to dig deeper and deeper in the field. I still have a very big love of learning all the time new tools, new methods, not because I'm curious, but because this gives you uh, uh, the tools to design and to deliver different things to the clients. If you know tools and methods, you can design the, the right uh, project for a client, no matter what is the resources that are available. So uh, this is what I did. And although I started mostly as a practitioner, so my, I think my foresight career is mainly providing services and running projects for clients. But then uh, gradually I also moved to the academic field, writing papers and publishing. I don't know why. Maybe it's also attractive to see your name published in a journal. Uh, I don't know if it was because I love the community or because I like to see my big name published. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I did this. And, uh, you know, uh, the one thing brings the other. I, I was very... Uh, honored to be awarded with the UNESCO chair in the country. And uh, that was a great door opener. The field in Greece doesn't exist. Nobody really knows uh, about foresight of future studies. So the UNESCO name was really a door opener. It gave uh, the importance and the branding so people uh, were keen to sit and hear what is about this field and what they can do on, on what they can get. So that was important, not only for myself, but I think that was also a catalyst uh, to do things in the country because the majority of the project that was running was outside Greece. Uh, so that was also an opportunity to start doing things in Greece, publishing in Greece, and so people and the community start to hear about foresight and future studies. But uh, yeah, this is more or less my story. That story... It's not a surprisingly different story for a whole lot of us that you've came to Foresight from another field and then found a place to stay and a place to play and then you moved into the academic and the theoretical basis of the field. But I think what is unique for you is that you've actually cracked what for many Foresight people is a really hard place to land Foresight by getting your chance to bring foresight into government. And I'm, that, I can say, having done quite a few interviews, is actually quite a singular achievement. I'd like you to talk a, a bit more about that as part of your story. Yeah, actually, this is also a nice story because uh, you expect that uh, someone might knew someone in the government or maybe I was pushing things in the government, but that was not the case. I was actually having my holidays in my village in the very south of the country. I was laying in the beach and I got a phone call uh, by someone I've never heard. And he was uh, explaining that the government is thinking of setting up uh, a foresight uh, office in the prime minister's office. So 
Uh, obviously, I thought it was like a practical joke. And although I received a couple more phone calls by the same person, I was very politely uh, yeah, um, I... actually denying. Yeah. And, but, I can, ima- I can yeah. imagine that. I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's from nowhere. And then at some point, he set up actually a meeting in the prime minister's office. And then I realized that was a serious case. So we set up this first meeting in the prime minister's office with the people that were actually setting up this initiative. So from that moment, we started to work uh, very seriously. Uh, it took us like uh, several months for the first step. That was an advisory team. And then uh, another year for setting up something more official that was special secretary. We've all been watching the Greek government from the GFC and all of the travails that have gone through the Greek political system since the GFC and all the turmoil and the debt crisis, when was this happening in Greece that there was a government and which government was it that actually made the overtures towards you and Foresight? It's actually the current government. It's from the centre-right party, which is the New Democracy Party, uh, and with the current prime minister. Uh, I think it was just a group of people very close to the prime minister that were actually young people that were reading international news. I was also having a very strong uh, appearance in the national newspapers, letting people understand what is for sight. So I was writing articles about what is for sight, what they can do about the megatrends. And all this, I think, created the right atmosphere. But it was actually the people in the prime minister's office that took this initiative. I did, I did nothing. You were there. You were there. You weren't hiding under a bush. You were out in the media and you were doing your public education and they found out about you. For many bitter and twisted ex-futures and foresight practitioners like me, we would say that politicians have a natural antipathy towards foresight because they can't think beyond the next election cycle. So how do you respond to a cynic like me that says that politicians just can't get foresight? But this is true. It uh, doesn't mean that the government that approved and created this secretariat can support everything we do. They understand, and I understand what you said, and I really, uh, this is the case also in our government. I don't think any government around the world can have this kind of very long-term uh, perspective. But I prefer to see the glass uh, um, uh, not empty, full. but half full. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think the most important thing that we are doing is that we help the people in the government to change a bit their mindset. I don't see great value in the reports that we are delivering because I have seen many reports, excellent reports, scenario studies delivered around the different policymakers around the world and there is no impact. So I believe that our main impact is we try to change the mindset of some people and I think we have done this in some extent. Congratulations. I might just pivot to the second question because I'm going to presume that something about the way that you either explain the field or demonstrate the usefulness of foresight was behind the people in government finding you interesting. In the second question, I encourage the guests to talk about a framework or a philosophy, an approach that while there's many things that you and many tools that you use, one that you think is central to the work that you do uh, and to explain the use of that to the listeners. So what do you want to explain and talk to them about? 
Yeah, uh, I, w- I would say a, a very quick story about uh, the foresight work we did in China for the European Commission. So the first study was about investigating the evolution of the innovation landscape in China towards 2025. And I was still in the very first years in my foresight career, so I was very creative but still very naive. And we really did a very nice report with my knowledge and my stance at that time. And we delivered this scenario study. And then I realized that was the end. I don't think anybody uh, did anything with that report. It took me some time, but I realized that, uh, and I see this problem, especially in the academic part of our foresight world. We might focus too much on the tools and the methods to be correct in how we apply these tools and methods. Uh, but then we reach a point that we lose the, the nature of our work, which is actually to change the mindset of people. Uh, people yep. uh, can get tired, can lose their interest because we need to run a Delphi with three rounds because otherwise the Delphi will not be valid and things like that. So I don't have any problem changing the rules or changing the, the methods. And I don't mind of being chemically correct or right because at the end of the day, uh, our main job is to deliver a service to the client. And this is to help them see the world and the future in different eyes. And uh, you have to provide something that will let them engage very uh, deeply in the process and also enjoy the process and also have an impact on them. So I started slowly and the thing with the serious game is something that uh, I started looking and not only this, but also different methods. I focused quite a lot studying different methods and tools, how to engage with people more. And I study many kind of different games. So in the next project I had in China, because we had another study again, I spent a lot of time to see how I can engage with policymakers so they can really feel the scenarios, smell the scenarios. And uh, at that time, I, I met with colleagues in the JRC. They had developed an amazing serious game for scenario exploration. It's the scenario exploration system. So we have worked together and we delivered the version of the game based on our second report on China. So what we did is that at the end of the project, we set a huge room with policymakers, like the president of the Chinese Academy of Science and Technology. So it were really high level people. And uh, we set up uh, tables with uh, boards and uh, role-playing games. So the people were actually uh, played the scenarios of, uh, and enjoyed. And also they, they actually practically explored different futures. So the impact of our work, at least this is what I felt, it was greater. So uh, from that time, this is my focus. Uh, let the people, let the participants, let the client engage in the process. Uh, ask them to participate in the workshops and uh, design workshops that are fun, not only produce results, but are also fun. And uh, so people can really uh, gain something and explore the future and change their mindset of how they see the world. Uh, So this is my philosophy. Uh, Are there other games that you found particularly useful to work with uh, senior groups? Uh, I have created also myself more than, I don't know, 15, 20 different games or game-like methods and tools. Uh, And I have focused in some of them that I use very often because I see great value in different parts of the foresight process. So, for example, the Scenario Exploration System is an amazing uh, game and I'm using this in different projects for people then 
after I finish the work and produce the scenarios to engage with the broader community and uh, invite people to play the game and explore the scenarios. But I use also other games. For example, the thing from the future, I use it almost every time in the beginning of a process because I found it very useful for opening the minds of the people very quickly. And no matter what I'm going to do and what is the context of the workshop, this game helped the participants to open their minds very quickly. We have created also a version of this game in the Minecraft, so we have used it with students in a virtual environment. I'm using different kind of tools or the Harman Fun method, which yep. is not a game, but still has a very, it's a very fun if, if you apply it. In, in it's an excellent process for let people tell their own story of the future. And as a practitioner talking to other practitioners, if somebody's interested in exploring how they might bring games into their practice, are there any particular places or resources that you would encourage them to follow up with? What I found very useful, especially in the beginning, but I'm still trying to do, I'm really following up with conferences. Uh, when I see a conference, I've tried to be on the sessions that actually presenting new tools or methods, games, because I, I found things there and I really enjoy to meet the colleagues and get ideas about this kind of new approaches. So conferences were really a very important knowledge place for me. And of course, Areas like the World Future Society Foundation, I'm, I'm really getting a lot of things from the conversations there. Uh, but it's mainly following colleagues also in LinkedIn. You mm. can find everything now online. And of course, having a first-hand practical experience of a method or a tool is more important. And this is actually because I started as a practitioner and moved to the academic. This is actually the main handicap or I don't know if it is a handicap or it is a necessity from what I see in the private consultancies. They, I think they are using the same tools and methods and the same design in the vast majority of the projects. Yeah. And uh, I think they have lost a bit the momentum, the new trends in the field. On the other side, I understand that they have to make, use, make good use of their resources. They need to have uh, some profit. So if they spend too much time of creating or designing a new method or a new tool for a client, that will not be very cost efficient. Uh, but I think they should be more active in participating, at least in some conferences, getting some new ideas. And yeah. Thanks, Nondas. Third question, Nondas, in terms of the futures that are most meaningful to you as, as you are now, what you are sensing, what you are interested in, what you are following up on, the futures that are getting your attention, they might be futures that you're getting attention to because you're excited by them or they might be futures that you've got attention to because you're actually quite concerned about them. But what are the futures that you're paying particular attention to? Yeah, that's another interesting question. You can read in the news and in the magazines about the mega trends, about the global challenges. But I think all this, it's more like a hype. I don't think they're really getting into the deeper uh, things. And it's more like a popular reading for the global community. I'm really concerned also on a national level, but also the global level of how society is changing and the values are changing and the way we understand the world. And I think this is a very deep uh, challenge. It's also related with uh, the way we deliver education during our school years. I don't think it has changed uh, a lot. 
I think it's practically the same way we received education when I was a schoolboy or even in the beginning of the century. Okay, maybe the books are different, but the way we deliver is the yeah. same. And now the challenges are quite different. The way that the information is delivered or the access we have in information. We thought that the internet and the social media will liberate us. But then after 10, 15 years, we realized that uh, maybe we are going on a different direction. We're in a different cage now than the cage we were in exactly. before. Exactly. And then at that time in the past, we knew, at least we understood who was the one that was manipulating or who was the mogul that was owning the media and was actually supporting the one government or the other. Now things are more tricky, fake news yeah. are everywhere, and the challenge for society and for the citizen are enormous. And I think this is going to be the biggest challenge because this is going to affect all the aspects of life, how we understand the world, how we deal with the global challenges, uh, how we can reach a consensus. Uh, it's very difficult to reach a consensus if you start from a very different basis. If we are in a time that we cannot agree in, in basic things, like if Earth is flat or it's a sphere, we start off so different uh, starting points, how we can reach a consensus. And this is only an example. We see what is happening in the COVID area with vaccines or discussions about climate change. Uh, at some point, we managed to reach consensus. You in Australia, you, and globally, we had a big problem with the ozone and the global uh, ozone uh, hole that was actually the ultraviolet uh, radiation. And at that point, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we managed to reach a consensus that we actually addressed the problem and we were really successful as a humanity. And now there is no problem with the ozone hole. But look what we are doing now with climate crisis. We can hardly agree on anything. And all the agreements are very, very light to bring any outcome. So, Nondas, um, I'll give you a futures concept. I think you've explained your probable future of values that we're actually getting further away from consensus we're getting further away from finding common areas of agreement but of course one of the tools of our field of course is to work on what we call preferred futures so in that space what might be the beginnings the suggestions of a future that would be more preferable in that space of society and human values? Well, I truly believe in, in humans. And I think if you see our history, we are moving to a better place. If we are looking back in a thousand years ago or even a hundred years ago, uh, of course, we have new challenges now, but we had new challenges many times in the past. So as I'm an optimist, I, I hope and I believe that we'll find the way to go to the preferable future. And for this preferable future, I think we have the tools now. We have the technology so we can address all these problems if we manage to find a consensus and agree as a humanity where we want to go. I would like to be optimistic and I think eventually we will reach this place that we'll find this consensus and we'll use technology to help us. I'm not a technology enthusiast in terms that I believe that technology alone will solve anything. I'm not imagining a techno-utopian place, but I think we can use technology in a great extent to address health issues, environmental issues. Most of the solutions are already out there. What we miss is yeah. uh, consensus and policies to use these technologies. 
You did your work creating the book, Playing with the Future for Greek educators and students. I don't want to put all the responsibility onto the generations coming after us, but do you believe that the generations coming after people of, I'll say, my age, offer part of what you're talking about to create the preferred future, that the generations coming after us are actually more disposed to to tackle some of these issues? Yeah, actually, I don't give any responsibility to the young generations. I think we bear all the responsibility and it's up to us to create this environment, this uh, society for them to develop in a way that they have the tools and the methods to address these challenges. And actually, to be honest, I think this is one of the great values that is not maybe... Uh, easily understood by not by us, the foresight practitioners, but the outsiders, that foresight is actually also offering a great platform for reaching consensus, for discussion, for helping people come together and understand the future, let's say, in a better way, in a more, find a consensus of how we can see the future together. So I think foresight can offer towards this direction. And uh, this is why I think initiatives like It's the Future. And uh, books like this can actually help uh, educators and students to see the world in a different way. Yeah, Robert Jung and his studies back in the 60s, he made a point that most people want peaceful futures, they want more equitable futures. It's actually not that complex in terms of what people want from the future. Of course, what Jung then found was that while people wanted these futures, they did not expect these futures. They actually mm. so there was almost a there was almost a point of bifurcation between the futures that people expected and the futures that people wished for. Yeah, actually, we are running a project right now uh, together with JRC and also Wendy Schultz is also involved and we are running a project to hear the voices of the European citizens. So it's a project that is actually organized by the Joint Research Centre, so it's a European initiative. And what you hear from the people, young and old uh, women and men, is actually this, they are looking for... uh, uh, for a social consensus. They would like to see a community that we care to, uh, for each other. So these are the priorities. Uh, no matter which country or what age, uh, yeah. this is there. And then you realize that we have to do something to create this future. We all wish for the same thing. So what is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so what is wrong? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Really, I don't know. I don't know. But, it, it, it is capitalism. I don't know. We have to change the system. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not an expert in this part. Yeah. No, some of our colleagues believe that the nature of economics, profit exchange, venture, enterprise mm. uh, is one of those things that is a break on us actually creating sustainable and equitable futures that we need to really get outside of this very, very narrow corporate paradigm, that the market and the corporate paradigm is the only possible future that we have to choose from. Yeah, I cannot disagree. Uh, Yeah, definitely we have a role to play. And of course, we are not that powerful. We are just a group of semi-core practitioners in the field, but we can play a role. We can talk about these things. We can bring long-termism in in the scene. And this is very important. We we tend to forget. We tend to focus on short-term profits. 
but uh, this is a mindset again that we need to change and we cannot do it alone we can we need people we need arts i really this is something i would like to say i really believe that art can help and we can use art in foresight and help people change their mindsets and how they see the world and how we can change our values in society art was always playing a role in this and i see that we Again, we turn to art uh, for this, but I think this cooperation should be stronger. Uh, we can change society through art and we can change the values through art. Do you think that the use of art sits centrally alongside this notion of futures literacy? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I have been trying. We run a workshop with some colleagues in Middle East universities and we use drama techniques to run a workshop. So it was a futures literacy workshop totally based on drama techniques. But I'm also collaborating with colleagues uh, in the film festival. We are now trying to organize uh, a modern art exhibition focused on uh, future challenges. And this is something that I, I explore. I'm not an expert. I'm still in the very first steps, but I definitely see the value. Uh, it is very clear that we need to change our values as a society and we need this kind of methods and art or other role models that they can help us in this process. Thanks, Nandas. Fourth question is the communication question. So what does Nandas say to explain to people what Nandas does? when they don't understand what it is that Nondas does? I was hoping we will not have time for this question because I don't have any answer. <laughs> I found it totally, totally impossible to explain very quickly what I'm doing. I see my kids and they are not younger. They are 18 and 16. So I see that my kids also, when they ask them, what is the job of your father? <laughs> I mean, they have been in conferences, they have been in workshops, but they can, they just say, I don't know exactly what he's doing. So it's it's very hard. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to say different things to different people, actually, uh, trying to find a communication channel. So if I corporate people, I'm trying to focus more on the uh, scenario planning or the strategy outcome of a foresight process, or maybe of how you can create a creative culture inside the company. But still, I have to explain. Uh, I, I haven't found a way to very easily and very quickly explain what I'm doing, and your help will be totally appreciated. <laughs> no, I just wonder, is there, have you noticed anything different post-COVID? Because COVID was one of those things that any futures work run in the last 30 to 40 years has talked about a scenario of the next infectious disease something more serious than SARS, more serious than swine flu. And it's been in every set of scenarios and every set of scenario cards and every every wild card. And yet we've just gone through, we've just gone through two years of an unimagined future for many businesses, governments. But coming out of that, has anything shifted? Is anything different in terms of the ability to talk about the need and the use of the stuff that we do? Definitely. For us, I think also in Europe, at least, from what I hear from the colleagues, but also here in Greece, that was a great help, a catalyst for what we are doing. People start to realize that they need to think in a different way. 
And even if they haven't heard about foresight, what I see in the discussions with people is that they start to understand that stability, that was something that everybody was looking in the past, they start to realize that stability is something that we will not see again in the future. And we just have to accept that uncertainty is going to be the reality. And these are in discussions not related to foresight, but still people are starting to realize that uncertainty is something that we should accept. We have delivered last week a scenario study that we we did in the government. And actually, we did this study with our colleagues in USA with the... Uh, National Intelligence University. University. Yes. Thank you, Peter. So we did this study, but uh, before uh, we had this kind of workshops and I really studied many foresight studies about uh, Ukraine and Russia before the war, uh, even uh, during the last 15 years. So I realized that in many studies, uh, there was a scenario with uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, so the problem was that uh, policymakers uh, have been receiving these scenario studies, but they actually didn't know what to do or how to read them or what does it mean. Uh, and also what we did is that we saw also foresight studies in Russia. They have been explaining that the world is changing and it's changing in a very bad way for Russia and we need to take action and energy is our main asset and we, we are losing this asset because they are moving towards uh, renewable energy sources. So all the pieces were there. there. But there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the main problem, this is why I'm coming again and again on the mindset part, because the information is there. Sometimes we don't need a huge scenario study of, I don't know, uh, some hundreds of thousands of euros to run interviews and workshops. I mean, for many things, uh, the information is there. What we need is to change the way we, we read this information and how we, we react, which is not, which mm-hmm. not easy. I understand that you cannot invest resources on preparatory activities because in most of the cases you might spend resources to something that will not happen maybe in the next 10 years. So it's not easy to take this decision. But still, if you have this kind of mindset, you will be more keen to react in a quicker way to these new threats and new challenges and black swans or things that are happening around us all the time. Thanks, Nandes. So, last question. You're the first Greek practitioner, academic, pracademic, whatever you want to call it, that we've had on FuturePod. So, do you want to maybe tell the listeners about the futures and foresight seen in Greece? Oh, thanks, Peter. Uh, It is actually a very small scene. Uh, We have started working with my colleague uh, in Thessaloniki, uh, as I said, 15 years ago. And uh, we have been running different workshops for many years. Nobody else was actually in the field. In the last years, I started to see more people appearing. uh, But we really have a big problem when we need resources because we cannot find people to help us, people that have the knowledge and the methods. And actually, this is what we are actually doing. And it's very, very exciting because we are actually now in the process of setting up a master's degree in foresight in the Open University in Greece. Yes, that will be an amazing, I think that will be a flagship moment for the community in Greece. We plan to deliver it uh, next year for the first time. And hopefully we're going to have more foresight practitioners coming out every year. But now the scene is practically a handful of people. Most of them are doing foresight uh, part-time. 
Uh, and uh, sometimes I describe Greece as a Caribbean country with uh, the motto, Yo no se mañana, so we are only interested about today or tomorrow. So it's very difficult to not only to talk to the government about these things, but also to the private sector. Companies are not interested in Greece to do this long-term planning or discuss these things. They are more interested of surviving and dealing with and addressing the series of, of crises that are appearing every day. So the crises that Greece has gone through since the GFC, that hasn't fundamentally, to use your term, changed people's mindsets that they need to be more futures focused to at least avoid having things like that? It is sad to say, but I'm afraid not. Uh, they even change the mindset even more focused on short-termism because the problems of the everyday problems are greater now or were greater during these years. So it was even harder to see a more long-term future or even take discussions about the future. So I'm interested as an ex-academic who taught into a master's program. There's many ways to put together a master's course that covers futures and foresight. I'm interested in the sort of philosophy of what the core elements are going to be. Obviously, the tools are going to be in there, but there's a whole lot of philosophy, Mm -hmm. values that go with foresight. And I'm wondering what you're going to introduce as some of the core philosophical values of the course. Yeah, um, well, uh, okay, there are things that I can say uh, and things I cannot say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was an exciting process, actually, to design the, the master's degree. We have studied several other master's degrees focusing on foresight. We have a lot of tools. We have a lot of methods inside. As I'm coming from this part and I have seen this kind of, of handicap in the academic world that they had, in many cases, they had very little experience in delivering services to actual clients. So there is a lot of uh, hands-on work inside the master. But the main difference maybe in relation with other master degrees in foresight is that we have also a lot of courses related with technoethics and bioethics and how these kind of challenges are going to change the society. So I think that will be the main difference in our master's degree. So besides the usual things like uh, foresight methods, history, futures literacy as a new area that is expanding, we are going to have also quite a lot of things related to uh, technoethics, bioethics, and uh, new challenges that are appearing in those fields. Are you going to be able to inject some of the games and some of the art into the master's course? Well, uh, the program will be offered on the Open University and it's going to be almost totally remote. So I probably will not be able to test in a physical space many of these tools, but we plan to have some gatherings every semester. So yeah, this is the plan to do some real work and to test the tools and the methods with the students. Okay. Well, look, it's been great to meet you and hear about Futures and Foresight in Greece, congratulations on getting the chance to develop another needed master's course and also congratulations for getting yourself into the Prime Minister's office. So on behalf of the FuturePod community, Nondas, thanks very much for taking some time out for a chat. Thank you, Peter. Especially you were a so hospitable uh, host. So it was really fun and I enjoyed the time I spent with you.
This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. 